Podcast One production. Welcome to Brand New World, a podcast series designed for marketers. Hi, I'm Russell Howcroft, Chief Creative Officer at PwC Australia, and I, along with Southern Cross Stereo, have a passion for building brands and businesses. The COVID-19 global pandemic has created insane disruption across the world, none more so than in the marketing industry. We're being forced to find new ways to build brands and communicate to our customers as their behaviour changes to adapt to what we're calling the new normal. This podcast series will help you find opportunity amongst the chaos. Throughout the series, we'll talk to experts in the industry about how they're adapting to a brand new world. As the host, my role will be to tease out the insights, creativity and lessons that will help us all get through this together and most importantly, keep your brand and business in good stead for the future. The good news is we're not all screwed. There is opportunity. Today's episode of Brand New World, we're going to talk about how to build a power brand as an influencer using social media and being relentless in your creation of content. Today, we're speaking to Chelsea Thomas, Chelsea's pretty famous because she built her own Instagram, socially-led, incredible fashion brand, I Heart Bargains. Chelsea, welcome to Brand New World. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. It's nice to see you virtually. Um, Where are you, Chelsea? I'm just out of Byron Bay. We've done a sea change and it was a great time to do it because we moved up in Jan just before it all went pear-shaped. It's been a beautiful place to sort of creatively recover, I suppose, from the last sort of eight years running my own business. And it seems to me that it's you and a whole lot of others just like you. You must feel at home. Well, I do. I think I came with different objectives, obviously, because I came really to rest and, and unplug and unwind in every sense of the word. So being near to the beach and it was the opposite, really, of the life that I led in Melbourne as an Instagrammer and obviously as a person in in a small and then what turned into a medium-sized business. So, yes, look, I walk down to the local market and I see the Courtney Adamos of the world with their, um, they're all matching in their linen. They actually look exactly like they look on Instagram, but I kind of came to here to really recover and then get the, I wanted that pressure off me. So I think what I, what I could have done absolutely uh, in that journey is continue my, my business up here. But that wasn't exactly authentic. Me anymore. It didn't happen purposefully or deliberately. I just, the end of the business came as I was going to move. I think it was a really good time to do both and kind of see what other paths were for me. So it's worked out really, really well. So prior to I Heart Bargains, tell me about your business life. So before, I suppose, starting at the start, I was right where you are in those Triple M studios. I actually was one of the first people to be employed in the integration team um, in Melbourne at Southern Cross Stereo. So I've got a, a mix of a media producing content background, if you like. And obviously, I came into that integration team, what, a decade or 12 years ago. And it was really when content was very separate to sales in a marketing sense from a media perspective. So really, my job was to bring those two together in in the um, in the gentlest of ways, because the producers back then didn't like when you mucked with their their programming. Let's talk integration. So um, I'm thinking that integration may have been a dirty word. Oh, I, I was employed. It was funny at the time. I was employed, and they sat three of us in this room, and they said, "Now listen, you're not to go walking around unless you know we tell you to." And obviously, I'm quite chatty, and I I got to know lots of the show talent, um, and I loved it. 
but they really needed to slowly integrate that that idea of integration and how sales was going to work, um, how brands were going to work within shows. It was a very new concept at the time. So, yeah, look, they slowly integrated us and then when they could see that it wasn't going to ruin their content, um, they were a lot more open, the producers and the show talent were more open to that. Yeah, so it was kind of that first wave of that and then um, I worked very closely with Fifi Box um, she was a wonderful friend and she took me over to Channel 7 um, where I was her weather producer for 12 months on the road, which was just a crazy, as you can imagine, crazy adventure, a new place every day. And it really taught me um, resilience. I think Channel 7 is a pretty hard place, as you would know, to be coming up through the ranks, especially when you're not based in an office. So really learning to um, work on the road um, under Adam Boland at the time. and We know Adam. We know we all know Adam. Um, I had a good time with Adam, actually. I really, really enjoyed working with him. He's great creative. And then um, when I came out of there, I, I had a baby after um, a couple of stints back and forward at Stereo actually. And maternity leave for me was that first indication that I might want to do something for myself. I'd worked with lots of different talent over the years and, and really pushed them and promoted them and I felt like this could be a chance to actually put that energy into something that I really was passionate about. So what are the core things you, in, in a commercial sense, what are the core things you learned? So you Southern Cross integration over to Network 7. Yeah, a lot of talent management um, and also the skill to be able to, I think there's, there's a core a similarity with everything that I'd done if you look at my kind of common roles was narrative and storytelling was it was a really large part of everything that I was doing from weather producing or working with Hamish and Andy or whether it be coming up with the you know a new Mazda campaign that needed to fit into into an ad schedule there was lots of different things that I learned but I think the one thing I kept coming back to was I really wanted to tell a story and an authentic story at that um, and as you know it's it's hard in that um, ad zone, I suppose, to to be able to do that to the full potential. And I think that's no matter what I did, I think when I got a break, which was maternity leave, is a perfect time to really have a good think about what you want to do, um, even though you've got a child on your hip. I got quite bored in that phase and I, you know, I started coming up with ideas and ways to connect with women through fashion. And it started very organically. You know, people say, oh, I'd love to start an Instagram page. And I'm like, that is, I did never intended to do that. When I started, Instagram was just starting to come into play. And I really took it upon myself to make it a blog concept at first. And this is purely selfish because I adored that process of finding really amazing things under $100. And I thought there's so many women out there breastfeeding their babies, looking for really cool fashion at a really good price and they don't have the budget anymore to shop like they used to shop. And I became nearly my own um, audience, if you like. You know, people say, what's your target audience? I was the audience. I was sitting on a couch. I didn't have the income that I once had. And I was like, why do I have to forfeit fashion, you know, in order to be still cool and still relevant? And so I, I literally started shopping and taking photos all around Richmond there. I was in Vic Gardens a lot with my baby and I started the blog after a mother's group conversation where one girl said, listen, you've got to send me this stuff that you're finding myself. And I said at the time, Mia Friedman, like Mama Mia was massive and I started it that way. I, I said, instead of sending you a PDF, why don't I start a blog? And it literally, I had the brand name that afternoon, 
I had everything ready to go and then I just started building the content very organically, not being paid a cent and just loving the shareability of it. Obviously, great instincts, no question of that, Chelsea. So you've said, hang on a second, there is a there is definitely a marketplace here. But also you were single, am I right, you were single-minded about your proposition as well? Very. Everything under 100 bucks. Was that, again, was that an instinctive thought or was that a marketing thought? A uh, bit of both because I understood that, you know, the marketing proposition needed to stand out from everything else that was out there. It was twofold, really. One, yes, I wanted to be different to anybody else that was doing, I suppose, fashion blogging at the time. And I thought, I want something that's unintimidating. I want something that's purely accessible for for women like me. And I want to have some fun with that. So the under 100 tagline, I was kind of psychotic. I've got to tell you, there was never, there was actually one moment where I wore something that was over $100 and I posted it. And the, the feedback I can tell you was not good. So I didn't do that again. So in your, in your street life, you were being watched. Oh yeah, like I would, I would come into events and people would say, "Where did you get that?" And I, I literally got to the point where, when I moved up here, um, obviously everything's cool and linen and really lovely fabrics, and of course my under a hundred dollar wardrobe didn't really fit my new lifestyle, so I had to do a big cull. But yes, I, I was the brand. I wore the brand, and it wasn't like I went out on the weekend and had my three hundred dollar Chanel Sunnies or my Gucci trainers. I, I honestly lived and breathed. The brand, and I think that's why it was so successful as well. Because whenever I did catch up with people, I was I was always practice practicing what I was preaching. Okay, so that is pretty intense, Chelsea. So when you started iHeart Bargains, Instagram was just maybe starting to become. Did you just say to yourself, "Oh, hang on, how good's this? I can actually build a business off this platform, and this platform is perfect for my business." I did, and look, you're looking at an eight year process. It wasn't something that happened overnight. I think the golden part of my business was it did start on, um, I probably had two years of solid blogging time where every night from seven to 11, I'd put the baby to bed and I would literally be um, building the content and building the website. And it was such organic content that, that I loved to do. So I had this bank really of content that I didn't really deliberately set out to achieve. And then from there, Facebook was really big. So that was the next kind of, um, and there was no pay for play then, right? It was like Instagram 12 months ago where you could actually see what you wanted to see and people were engaging with the content there. Then Instagram came into play and the, the visual and the, the speed of it, and obviously there was no stories, there wasn't highlights, there wasn't anything like that. It was purely just picture, you know, imagery. And video wasn't even there. So I found those for my offering. You know, I'm talking about, you know, tops and T-shirts and elasticated waisted pants and active wear. And visual was really important to, for the success of the brand because people could see it and then they could buy it. And it was that fast. And they wanted it now. It was, all the women, I want it now. Where did you get that? And, and I started seeing this really fast traction. Brands would contact me, me and say, what we've sold out. Now that's more common to hear now, but back then I was like, hang on a minute. I can, if I'm selling you out of a Kmart Duna cover, like how many units are we talking here in Kmart? That's powerful. And also I can charge you. And that was a big question for me was the commercial model. I think the commercial model would be of great interest to many of the listeners because clearly you've created an amazing brand. Clearly there's an incredible instinct so that instinct for single-minded proposition, in effect, talking to yourself, yourself as the audience, and then that it's like a 
you know, we used to call it a lighthouse strategy to shine the light out and then you'll catch. So that's clearly what's happened. But you've also created a commercial model. I'd love to hear more about that. How did the money work? Yeah, and I'm very open with this side of it. I always have been, especially with other influencers that say, you know, I, I feel like there's a piece of the pie for everyone. And it, it happened really inadvertently. I didn't set out to, to make a whole lot of cash. That was not what I was about. But what I did think was, well, if I can move product in a certain way on a certain platform, it's not costing me anything. I never, I never advertise at all. I never put sponsored dollars behind any of my posts. I would say to clients, listen, this is the narrative for this particular product. I think this is really important. And because of my background, I had an understanding of what was really going to sell and what wasn't. And I was very open and very honest and upfront with the brands that I worked with. Target being my first client, they, it's ironic, isn't it? They noticed straight away and they contacted me. They said, well, you know, we don't have anything left of this. It was something in their homeware section. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've put that up. And they said, no, we know. We're watching the sales, uh, you know, overnight and we want to work with you. And um, back then, you know, it was all very new, this space of charging brands. It, it was when it was new. I feel like it's archaic now, but charging them like $200 a post back then. And that was pretty much just a static image and a, and a caption and a tag. And they didn't really know either how that relationship was going to work. So it was fairly open to the influencers back then. I remember going to an end of year, I was thinking about this, an end of year event where they celebrated all the influencers that they worked with. And I reckon there was 80 of us that were being paid at any one given time over sort of set weeks. And they'd they'd use you for spikes for campaigns and stuff. But the the brands that I worked with ongoing for, for nearly... Six years of that eight years, Australia Post, L'Oreal, there was a couple of big shopping centres like Eastland that I worked with continuously because they kept seeing the benefit. I think the the best part of how I did that and for CMOs or for agencies listening, the one thing that they did different to others was that they actually invited the influencer in and said, what are you working on? What's your narrative coming up? We want to hear what your ideas are instead of getting the brief and jamming it down influencer influencer's throat. I think there's there's room there, and I know it's a time thing, totally get that, but I think if there's a, a particular brand that wants a relationship, an ongoing relationship with a set of influencers, the best thing you can do is pick a top five. I know that L'Oreal is working on this quite heavily at the moment, and I was going to be a part of that, but I'm, I'm no longer. But it's really about bringing the influencer in and saying, what are your priorities? What, what do you really give a shit about? What, what are you doing in the next three months? Because we want to work in with your content. That's different to it goes from ad agency to PR and then you get the PR call. You don't get a call. You get an email and say, do you want to work on this brief? This is how much they're offering. And then you kind of, you see it. I mean, you can see if you're a consumer, you can see when a brand pushes out a really big campaign now. It's, it's so commercially ugly, I think, in terms of it not being, you know, it's, it's not authentic when it's so produced and it's so on time. And so I really worked with brands that wanted to do things that I wanted to do with my audience um, and they were the most successful. And so it sounds like um, you were doing integration. No, I was, yeah. <laughs> I was just doing it for myself and, and you know, making a great wage from that. It's, it was great. That, of course, was the model, right? That's the integration model. And then the other thing, of course, which is, again, interesting with regard to your background, Mm. um, the relentless nature of being on the weather trail. Clearly, what you were doing was fundamentally relentless. You were were fit around what's required. 
Yeah, and I think, um, you know, after a couple of or a year of psychology sessions afterwards, I'm, I'm very open and honest to say um, I, I was an adrenaline junkie. There is no doubt that I was a workaholic. I had two small children and it was not a healthy lifestyle to lead. And I think I want I wanted to note that in this podcast because I think a lot of people look up to this and they really think it's, you can come in and you can come out and it's, it's glamorous and it's just not. I think being online, I, one day I did, there's this app called Moment. It's quite scary if you log in because it actually tells you how many times you, A, pick up your phone and then how, many t- how long you're on it. And um, I downloaded this midway through last year and the business was obviously really busy. I was averaging like 130 pickups a day. It's just mindless when you think about how, in, but I had to be that entrenched in order for it to be that successful. Yeah, each pickup equaled money. Well, yeah, not, you know, not exactly. I think I was, there, there was a stage there where I looked at every component of what I was doing in a week and what I tried to do was 50-50. So what that meant was, you know, more quality content for the brands that I worked with in and you've probably heard of it, but there's lots of brands now that do always on campaigns. And what that means is obviously they have a smaller gamut of influencers, but they work with them on an ongoing partnership and really, it's so it it appears to be obviously, and and in often it is more real. So I did some really fantastic stuff with Australia Post. Hats off to them. They, they are they they don't appear maybe to to advertisers and to marketing offices, but in terms of really leading the way in terms of them allowing the influencer to lead the space instead of the other way around. Well, I said to them, I, I want to do something, you know, in this give back space. I've got 100,000 women that look at me every day in what I'm wearing and I, I ask them to, you know, I don't ask them to purchase. I say, this is what I'm wearing. You, you take it or leave it. Um, but I was having more in-depth conversations with the women at this stage and I was realizing that a lot of them didn't have what I had and a lot of them didn't have what half my audience had and they were struggling. And I said to Australia Post, listen, I, I really want to do this give back campaign. I'm going to do it without you anyway. But it'd be lovely if you could send some care packs so I got all my kind of my clients together and I said, what can you give me? I need freebies, which obviously they've got plenty of. Um, and I said, I'm going to package them up for Mother's Day. And we actually ended up doing a hundred of these care packs that went out to women all around Australia. Like I'm talking places I'd never heard of. And their stories started pouring in. And it was a really emotive, very emotive campaign that Australia Post said, listen, we're going to post them out for you. I feel like influencers, if they worked more that way, the world would be a better place. Imagine if everything you got for free, you actually handed on to, to part of your audience because that's why you're there effectively. So that was really important for me. And if I could give any advice to a brand, I'd say maybe work on something that's based around your audience instead of all the push, push, push. What can you do to actually give back to them without being too corny about it? You can be clever. You can be very clever about it and very thoughtful about it too. And Chelsea, did you ever get involved in sort of aggregating influences? So you plus others plus others plus others in order to create a – so your audience was 100,000, yeah? Yes. Yeah, it was a bit more than that and it's dipped now because I've had a break. Don't break, whatever you do. <laughs> yeah. they'll, they'll, dis- they'll disappear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so aggregating. So did you get involved in making that aggregation happen or were you part of being aggregated? Both. Yeah, but in a, it's funny you ask that because in a couple of the larger campaigns, it was like the layers that would come through as you, I know you experienced. I nearly ended up like a mini manager for a number of influencers actually that just 
didn't get how to rep themselves. So at one stage, I think, and I can't remember who exactly it was, but I'd have sort of eight influences that would that I would actually brief. I got like I half the time I'd get the brief and I'd say, listen, I've rewritten it for you. This is a lot easier to understand. Have your content in by this date. And I was nearly like a, I suppose, like a mini agency in a way. Where yeah, where and the agency was obviously at the at the brand end was thrilled because they I could communicate with them on their level and they got the content in time and it, and it really worked. But I also enjoyed working with other influencers that were authentic as well. So tell me about the future of influencers, talent, social media as a marketing tool. Tell me what when you think about the future, what does it look like? I'm really enjoying you know being a, a consumer of of socials now. I think, you know, I've, I've come off and I've, I've dipped back in as well. But I think what I'm seeing now, um, there was a really fantastic example of what Turia Pitt has done um, recently with the, the fires. Are you aware of the Spend With Them campaign? No. Okay. So after the fires, obviously, we all want people to go back and spend in small business and regional businesses. Um, and so she started this page randomly. And that's what I love about it. It's not produced. She was genuinely going out there to assist a group of people that were struggling. And she created Spend With Them. And what that was all about was oh, yeah, yeah, really yeah. promoting small businesses, yep, yep. right? Now, this is clever. This is not something to buy from the bush is the other one, which I know that brands were trying to get their hands on that as well because it's a really, really clever proposition. But I feel like, True heroes, smaller influences, and this kind of assistance in some way. Obviously, there's always going to be the bikini models. There's always there's all that's there's always going to be that. But I feel more and more the there's no authenticity there, and audiences are understanding that. I think brands need to get smarter with genuinely giving back and genuinely having some campaigns that involve real people. Officeworks is a really good example of someone I worked with and I actually went in and did some coaching with them and said, listen, you've got to put some bloody people in your campaign. It's all product. Product doesn't sell products. People do. Yeah. And they were really, being West Farmers, they were very reserved to, to go down that path and have anyone on their platforms talking about their products. I just thought that was ludicrous. I was like, well, what, what do you mean? What, what, why can't we do this? So having some awareness at an agency level about who are the true heroes that we're looking up to. If brands can go in, in that zone and, and be partnered with people that really have a great story, I think there's going to be a lot more of that. So, Chelsea, you build a brilliant business, um, a beautiful brand, and I know that your brand is, if I said on ice, is that how you describe it? <sighs> My, it Probably not it great language. I've got a brand on ice. No, but it I no, I would say it's might maybe it might be under the ground. I, yeah, I mean, look, I heart bargains is no longer. I I finished it up at the end of last year. I um. You didn't sell it, did you? No, I didn't sell it. I've still got it all, Russell. Yeah. Do you want it? No, it's quite. <laughs> I tell you, do you know someone that wants it? Well, I, it's interesting, isn't it? When you think about the so BAV Brand Asset Valuator, which was um, the Y&R Group, has got that sort of globally. It's a brilliant database, BAV, and the four the four key pillars of power brands are relevance, esteem, knowledge, differentiation. It's always a fun thing to go through in one's head, and not just fun. It can be quite commercial as well. Just rate yourself out of five, right? So think about your audience and how they interacted with iHeart Bargains. 
So relevance, how relevant was it to them? Under 100 bucks, your audience, re- relevance out of five. Give me a number. It was so relevant. It was five, I would say, in terms of that. Five. Okay. Back to your audience, iHeart Bargains. To what level did they hold iHeart Bargains in esteem? Oh, probably three three to four. I was just, I felt like I was, it was always watched very closely. And I always, I think the one thing about engagement, and if we look at the qualitative, not necessarily the quantitative data that I was getting, every time I did a campaign or anything, I always, it was always positive. Maybe four. Are you being modest? Yeah, of course. I'm going to be modest. I've never been asked this stuff. So, yeah, probably. Okay. So then how knowledgeable? So we've got relevance, esteem, knowledge, differentiation. So how knowledgeable was your audience about iHeart Bargains? Yeah, I would I would say four. And then the killer one, of course, is differentiation. So look, that changed over time. So, right, we might say it's three now, but when it started, obviously there wasn't this, I feel like this train of, of bargain bloggers, who would have thought, right, um, bargain bloggers. And when when I started, Kmart wasn't even popular. We're, we're looking at a stage where people were embarrassed to go into Kmart. Now, the shareability of that brand is, it's it's sky high. I don't know whether it's dropped off a bit, but, it, you know, I was growing or growing with those brands with them. And I, so I think... It may have been a five actually when I started because I was I was the only one doing it at that time. Now there's there's a lot of different pockets of um, of content that you can you can grab that sort of product from. So Chelsea, you can only be described as a super brand builder, quite genuinely. But high scores on relevance, five out of five for relevant. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm sure that that's true. Esteem, i.e., your audience held you in high esteem, held your business in high esteem. I'm sure that's true. Knowledge, how knowledgeable were they about your proposition? They were highly knowledgeable. They knew that they would go there and get good product for under 100 bucks that fulfilled their needs. And differentiation, you created a different a different brand. So you've got the Procter & Gamble's of the world, the L'Oreal's of the world, the sophisticated marketers of the world spend millions, hundreds of millions, trying to get BAV scores like you've just given yourself, but I'm not going to argue with you. I reckon you're right. Well, I, I, I did give myself. I did give it to myself, so I'm sure they'd like to give their own scores to themselves. But I think, look, there's no doubt that it was a it was a wonderful offering. I think what I'm trying to do now, which is this really interesting transition of um, go, going from a brand, which is I Heart Bargains, into, into a personal brand, which is Chelsea Thomas. You've got to remember... I'm not silly in the fact that they followed, yes, they followed me for me, sure, but they followed me for that proposition. So when you, you go in and you start talking about something completely unrelated, I don't think it's fair to that audience. I, I don't like people that sell their Instagram page and then they start, you know, talking about something completely um, completely different. Could the Iconic or ASOS or, or another smaller brand take it over? Absolutely, because they're a highly consumable, consumable female Probably in the in the thirty to forties, it's smack bang in that in that target. It's whether I kind of want to do that. Um, and and you know what, I'm in that phase where I actually I don't know. You're the first person to kind of ask me, would you consider it? So Chelsea, we've just ascertained you've got one. You have one hell of a power brand, and yet you've walked away. So how come? What happened? Burnout. I would say in 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 two words. Burnout. Um, you know, I'd been on the platform for a good eight years. I was having all sorts of issues with kids and connectivity to just normal life. Really, I, I became really obsessed with and addicted to to building the brand, which was great in those initial phases. But of course, over time, 
the adrenaline starts to wane. And also, I think just authentically, it was all based around fashion. And I think I've got more things to say um, beyond that now. And I, I kind of evolved. Uh, and, and it's okay to walk away when it's, when it's at its peak. It's okay to do that and work into your new chapter. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the fifth, the fifth element in power brands is energy. Brands with energy tend to grow. Right? Surprise, surprise. And when brands lose their energy, that's when they start to lose their differentiation, their relevance, their esteem, et cetera. It's quite interesting, isn't it, when you just think about it that at a, at a personal level. Yeah. We're into regeneration at, at Byron, and I'm looking forward to the next iteration, Chelsea, because I'm pretty convinced it's going to be awesome. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Russell. That was great. Brand New World is a Podcast One Australia production. Produced by Dave Zwolenski and Matthew Dwyer. Executive producers are Nikki Clarkson and Jennifer Goggin.